Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim White, Digital Editor, and I'm joined this week by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Ed Thornton, our Assistant Editor. Coming up this week, we delve into, once again, uh, the question of, is the church too middle class? And looking particularly at what the Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, has had to say on the subject. We're also looking at the Crown Nominations Commission and questioning uh, whether the Synod groupings have got too much influence And we have an interview with the Bishop of Leeds, uh, Nick Baines, who's just come back from a visit to Sudan with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Don't forget, if you're not yet a subscriber, there is a fantastic offer on at the moment. Five issues of the Church Times for just £5. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. First up, uh, the Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, um, has been at the New Wine uh, Conference. Um, It's an evangelical, charismatic conference. His address has been causing a bit of a stir. What's he been saying? So um, addressing the conference, um, he gave a talk entitled Hope for the Poor, um, in which he suggested that the church had basically been complicit in the abandonment of the poor. And he argues that by focusing on the needs and aspirations of the rich um, has actually precipitated the church's decline. Um, So he makes this case that renewal has always come from the poor, um, and that by um, sort of failing to continue in that tradition, the church has actually accelerated its own decline. This is the drum he's been banging for quite some time, isn't it? Yeah, so several aspects um, of the talk um, he has made in the past, particularly um, during synod meetings. He was formerly a member of synod, and these points that he makes about the difficulty of recruiting priests um, to areas outside the southeast um, um, is a point that he's made before. Um, he's also made the point about church planting in areas um, of sort of relative wealth and sort of the suggestion of that sort of low-hanging fruit. So these are points that he's made before, um, but possibly sort of not at this length and to this sort of audience. And because he's, he's made these points at, at the Synod before in the pages of this newspaper, but is this the first time he's really gone to that kind of charismatic evangelical audience who are very involved in church planting. Yeah, and I think you could argue that there is um, some points being made about churchmanship. Um, so he argues that we've had two decades of evangelical ascendancy, that that has um, cohered with an emphasis on mission and evangelism. And yet he goes on to say what has been the result, accelerated decline. Um, so I think there's possibly um, questions there for evangelicals. Of course, that was the group that he was addressing with the talk. I find this really interesting because, and this is a quite a prophetic message, but Philip North is by no means um, a marginal figure in in the church structures. He's a member of the Archbishop of Canterbury's um, evangelism task group. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's highly respected by people in you know, Lambeth Palace and Church House, so I think he really will get a hearing. He really pulled no punches in the talk, saying the harvest is rich, but the labourers have been redeployed to wealthier areas. And also saying he found it extraordinary how many people Jesus seemed to be calling to plant churches in zones one and two, how we need to plant churches in areas that don't necessarily have um, really good coffee or, or bakeries mm-hmm. and things like that. He really, he really wasn't holding back. So this is something which um, I looked at in 2014 after he made a very similar speech at Synod. Um, and we did look into recruitment um, comparing the southeast, which does tend to have high volume of applications to areas, particularly in the north. Um, and we did find the pattern that he talks about. Um, but we also looked at why that is and we interviewed archdeacons and bishops and people involved in vocations. And I think it's fair to say that it is more complicated than what sort of coffee is available, and I'm sure that um, Bishop North would acknowledge that. There are questions around spousal employment, around caring for elderly relatives who might be based in the southeast, 
And also just a bigger question around the extent to which we're expecting people to make a sacrifice when they choose where to serve. So, you know, to, to what extent are we accusing people of sort of being complacent or looking for a comfortable lifestyle? Um, to what extent do we expect people to make sacrifices in where they serve? Not only a sacrifice for themselves, but also perhaps their children. Mm-hmm. Where some people, I mean, he mentions that in the talk, doesn't he? That, that he calls it a litany of excuses about not wanting people, people not wanting their children to be educated with poorer children and and things like that. So when I did the news feature, I interviewed Nicholas Henschel, who um, has since been promoted to Dean of Chelmsford. And he talked at length about being based um, in a deprived urban area and the fact that his kids went to local schools and really how proud he was about the way they'd turned out, how it actually shaped um, who they were and what they cared about. And basically a message of you don't need to be afraid to send your kids to local schools. So it was particularly striking to see Philip North, who is um, famously a traditionalist Catholic, um, taking this quite provocative message into the heart of New Wine, which is really at the epicentre. A lot of the church leaders there of um, people who have been in the ascendancy. Um, we talked about church planting figures like Rick Thorpe, um, the Bishop of Islington, and plenty of others who have been at heart church planting and very connected with the New Wine Network. So it's really quite striking to see a, a bishop from completely outside that stream of churchmanship to come in there and make such a kind of bold challenge to to what something that is at the core of their ministry and as and as as we've seen as something the church of england centrally and on a diocese they were just pouring a lot of money and time into i thought it was really interesting that he's saying that many churches he didn't name names but he said many churches have their planting strategy exactly the wrong way around because many start with the city center where there are students you hear some talk of influencing the culture by um reaching the kind of culture makers the opinion formers and you know that could just be code for people who are quite well off and privileged really and he's saying that's exactly wrong and um, with the christian faith it's primarily for the poor and then it might reach other people and he also said in terms of money this talk of subsidized churches churches which don't generate a lot of income are being subsidized he says well actually the richer churches are being spiritually subsidized by the poorer the ones ministering in poorer areas because they are doing the primary gospel work of reaching the poor i think there probably will be a degree of pushback from church planters um i think the bishop acknowledges in the piece that um for example st peter's brighton has planted on the white hawk estate um, I interviewed the vicar of St Peter's Brighton who was quite honest about some of the challenges of that planting process um, about perhaps the fact that Sunday services are perhaps in his words the least successful element of that plant. There's also been I think a number of sort of secondary plants from some of the the bigger sort of initial wave are now planting onto sort of more deprived areas so that there is this sort of grandchildren of the initial wave of plants who I think wouldn't see themselves perhaps as operating in the same space as some of those first ones. So is the idea that you these these HGB plants say go for the city centre first with the students and the young professionals and the families and then they from a position of strength plant to an estate or somewhere a bit more? That seems to be the model so far. Um, I think HDB are really honest about the fact that they look for an iconic building in a city centre near to students and with really good transport links. And I don't think they've sort of ever hidden the fact that, that that's what they look for initially. I think Philip North operates in a really interesting space because he's obviously from the Anglo-Catholic wing of the church. I think he is interested in more than just numerical growth. But he's not dismissive of it either. I think he does see it as a measure of the health of the church, which is why he talks so much at New Wine. 
about numerical decline and the acceleration of that decline. And there's a passage where he says that um, he praises passionate and committed Christian ministry, which is combined service and proclamation. And he's made this point before that, yes, there is an element of social action that the church has to take, but let's not abandon evangelism. And he's a very interesting voice on the Archbishop's Evangelism Task Force because he's not from the evangelical wing. And he's pro-evangelism, but pro a an Anglo-Catholic evangelism, which he sees as substantially different, not only in style, but in theology from evangelical evangelism. More based around the Eucharist, bringing yeah. Christ through. And Eucharist. he's very passionate about um, having confidence in that. So encouraging Anglo-Catholics not to adapt or conform to evangelical forms of evangelism but being really confident in their own tradition and perhaps moving on from some of the debates um, at Synod which which dominated for some time and getting on with the work of Anglo-Catholic mission. What's interesting to me actually is that we were having this conversation earlier in the office and one of our colleagues referenced um, uh, a 1920s uh, bishop I think you have it there, Ed, and it really suggests that sometimes maybe these debates never go away. They just kind of circle around in different formats from generation to generation. That's right. The the bishop our our colleague mentioned was the um, well-known Bishop of Zanzibar, Frank Weston, who spoke at the Anglo-Catholic Congress in 1923. And and he, this is obviously to Anglo-Catholics, but it was a very similar message to Bishop Norse. He said, you cannot claim to worship Jesus in the tabernacle if you do not pity Jesus in the slum. I think something which will probably have something of a pushback um, is his argument that it's hard to attract what he calls calibre leaders to estate churches. So he says many of those who do that work are heroic. We have to be honest and accept that some really struggle because the reason for being there is that it's the only job that they could get. God doesn't seem to be calling our best leaders to serve the poor. Or maybe he is calling and we're not listening. Um, It will be interesting to see um, what the response is to that assertion. Um, I know that he's actually working very closely with a number um, of estate leaders as part of his work on the Evangelism Task Force. And there's also an upcoming event um, looking at that. So I don't think there's any question that he has really strong relationships with people who are called to this ministry. But certainly an interesting question there around um, who is serving there and and this assertion um, that perhaps... um, the the best on being called there. Tim has written a story this week on the elections for the central members of the Crown Nominations Commission. Tim, what have you been finding out? It's uh, it's quite an internal church story, but it's quite an interesting one as well. Um, For those who don't know, the Crown Nominations Commission, or CNC, is basically a committee that is drawn up every time there is a vacancy for a diocesan bishop. Um, And it's composed of both archbishops, uh, six representatives elected from the diocese, and then there are six central members who sit on each of these CNCs. And they're elected for five-year terms. Elections happened last week. There are three elected from the House of Clergy in the General Synod and three from the House of Laity. Um, And I was really reporting not just on who has been elected, but I really wanted to dig into a bit deeper about uh, some of the comments made by um, Professor O'Donovan, Oliver O'Donovan, who is a theologian who is leading a review into the workings of the CNC. And he reported back at Synod a few weeks ago about some of their interim findings and some of the things that he and some of his colleagues mentioned was this idea that the Synod groupings, uh, the various factions in the Synod that represent different churchmanship have slightly taken over uh, the elections. Um, so I was really putting that question to some people from each of the different factions. And how is it suggested they've taken over the elections? Is this by putting people forward from a particular party grouping in the Synod and ensuring that they get on to the CNC? 
partly uh, slightly it's slightly more complicated than that so the the elections are done through a form of single transferable vote so each member of the synod can put kind of one then two then three and they rank all the candidates in order um the the elections were intended originally simply just to be representative of the whole church but how it has evolved over the years a lot of people say is that the evangelical group put forward a number of candidates who whom not publicly but it is privately known that they are standing on the evangelical ticket and the same thing happens for the traditionalist catholics for the liberals for the affirming catholics and so on and so forth and professor o'donovan's review group suggested that actually this has led to people getting elected not because they might have the greatest sense of gifting and hearing the Holy Spirit or discerning what a new bishop is, but simply because there were enough evangelicals who wanted to vote for an evangelical representative so that they knew that they would have an evangelical seat on every CNC. You quote Professor O'Donovan saying that when members arrive at the CNC with minds already made up, their preferred bishop already selected and in their pocket, then the whole process becomes subverted and very difficult indeed. That sounds like quite a problem. Absolutely. And another one of his criticisms was about the idea that people shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking the CNC is some kind of secular interview process, where you're simply like any other recruitment process. He said it's not. It's a discernment process. It's much more akin to how people become uh, selected and nominated to go forward towards ordination, in which you're trying to hear the voice of God and discern whether the candidate before you has the right giftings. And so I guess he was critical of the idea that evangelicals deserve a seat, or Anglo-Catholics or liberals deserve a reserved seat on the CNC because if they turn up feeling that they are there because they're evangelical they then are less likely to be open to hearing the spirit prompting them to say actually maybe this Anglo-Catholic candidate is the best candidate. And the CNC has changed its process in recent years to be a little bit more akin to a job interview. You know, things like interviews, presentations. I mean I think Justin Welby was the first Archbishop of Canterbury to, select, to be selected with some kind of interview and presentation so that must have an influence on the kinds of people who come through. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was looking back at a bit of the history of the CNC, um, how its process evolved. I think they introduced the interview element about a decade or so ago, I think, give or take. Um, and there were actually some people who were quite opposed to that for that reason that they thought it would favour quote unquote flashy priests or people who had great presentational skills and there might be some kind of deeper thinkers who were missing out. Interestingly, one of the points made by Father Paul Benfield, who's the chair of the Catholic group and general synod was that he thought there was a, a problem in that the, the CNCs were not choosing theologians. There was a real lack of theologians in the House of Bishops, and he questioned whether this might be because of the way the CNC goes about its process, as well as the people who are chosen to be on it. They don't value someone who maybe hasn't done parish ministry or isn't a dean or an archdeacon and has gone on a slightly alternative route and might be in a theological faculty, mm-hmm. but clearly the church needs theologians in the House of Bishops and maybe the process needs to be tweaked to ensure that different kinds of priests are getting drawn into the, into the college. And who are some of the people who've been elected to the CNC and, and what do we know about, about them? So the three clergy members that have been elected for uh, five-year terms um, are the Reverend John Dunnett, who is the General Director of the charity CPAS. Um, he's also the Chair of the Evangelical Group on General Synod um, and this is his second term. Uh, and then another member is Kenneth Judith Maltby, who is a church historian from University of Oxford. And is again for us regularly in our books pages. Absolutely. Read her in the Church Times very regularly. Um, she's also been re-elected for another term. And lastly, uh, the Dean of St. Paul's, um, the very Reverend Dr. David Ison. 
And then the laity members are Jane Patterson, who is a surgeon and church warden from Sheffield, who has been again been re-elected for a second term. Um, Anthony Archer, who is a reader from the Diocese of St Albans and who previously served a short term on the CNC about 10 years ago. And uh, Christina Barron, who is a retired university lecturer from the Diocese of Bath and Wells. Um, so I looked through the... Each of the candidates makes a short address, uh, well, a written address of about 100 words in a booklet which is distributed before the election. So I looked through that and most people don't make any reference to their churchmanship. They don't have party labels in a, like you might have on the ballot for a, for a general election or anything like that. Um, and so it's not obvious, or to me at least, to be able to pinpoint where some of these people might fall on the spectrum of churchmanship. But then you hear from others in the Synod that actually, as a Synod member, you can find out there are networks and there are ways of, of establishing who is standing for which party. And there are also rumours, I can't confirm or deny them, that sometimes the Synod groupings will coordinate among themselves to say, you know, one, two, three for these candidates or whatever. Um, when I when I put some of these questions to people like John Dunnard, I spoke to him and people from um, the Open Synod group, from Firming Catholics and other groups like that, most of them actually re- rejected the claim that their, the faction system had taken over the process and twisted it from what it was meant to be um, and, and also made a kind of practical point that there isn't really logistically an alternative way of filling these central members. Uh, for example, Robin Back, who's the who's the chair of the Open Synod group, which is kind of a the kind of middle synod group for those who don't want to pick any other label. He told me that he was unconvinced by any suggestion that synod elections should be scrapped entirely and they should instead be appointed by a body. He says, ultimately, the synod is the people uh, who the church has chosen to be responsible for managing the church um, and removing that responsibility and handing it over to a committee of the, quote, great and the good. Um, is no way forward at all. Which parts of this week's issue stood out for you, Tim? I particularly enjoyed um, one of the features this week. Um, It's headlined, Finding Faith When All Is Stripped Away. And it's uh, an interview with Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who's um, a very senior police officer in the Metropolitan Police in London, more than 20 years working in London, all the way up to being borough commander. Um, And it's it's a... it's reflecting on a memoir that he's just published called Blue, um, Keeping the Peace and Falling to Pieces. Um, and it's, it's both um, a love letter to policing, but also uh, a very human account of his collapse and recovery after depression. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, really, it's a really interesting, thought-provoking piece. Um, very, very honest, very authentic. Um, and uh, it's not something you really expect to read. Uh, a police officer, you know, uh, whose job is, I guess, is to hold it all together, admitting that how, how things fell apart for him. I'd like to mention any previously unpublished poem that we've been given exclusively. It's by UA Fanthorpe. We were given the poem by UA Fanthorpe's partner, Dr R V Bailey, um, to commemorate the passing of the 1967 Sexual Offences Act. The poem is called Gay Christians. It's on page 14 of this week's paper. We've also had a lot of reaction to Dr Henry Ratter's piece last week, um, arguing that there is a link between the personality of priests and whether or not they're congregation grows that's a lively debate i think that could go on and i think that's been our most read piece this week on the website that's right yeah well worth a read and our cover feature this week is on artist residencies in cathedrals and churches what happens when an artist is invited to cross the threshold it's entitled a fractious and yet fruitful embrace the archbishop of canterbury was in sudan earlier this week to celebrate the country's church becoming the Anglican Communion's 39th independent province. The North African nation is predominantly Muslim, 
and fought a long civil war with the now independent state of South Sudan, which is a majority Christian country. As well as a simmering border conflict, human rights organisations report that freedom of religion in Sudan is fragile. Some pastors have been detained and churches knocked down by the government. The 2016 Anya report by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom stated that the regime led by Omar al-Bashir, quote, represses and marginalises the country's minority Christian community. The Bishop of Leeds, the Right Reverend Nick Baines, joined Archbishop Welby on his trip to Sudan and had an opportunity to sit down with President al-Bashir and other senior figures. I spoke to him after his return to the UK earlier this week and asked him what he had found out. Uh, I wanted to kick off by just asking if you could explain for a little bit um, why exactly did you decide to join Archbishop Welby on his trip to Sudan recently? Um, I joined the Archbishop on the trip to Sudan because my diocese, the Diocese of Leeds, has had, um, uh, originally in the historic Diocese of Bradford, has had a link with Sudan uh, for nearly 40 years. So I was planning to go to the inauguration anyway, but it was easier to tag along with the Archbishop, um, so that's what I did. And the main purpose of your trip, am I right, is to celebrate, as you said, the inauguration of the new province of Sudan, um, the 39th province of the Anglican Communion. Um, why, why, why was it important to, to create this new province rather than having a single province covering Sudan and South Sudan? Well, the political history of Sudan and South Sudan is quite um, difficult, as you can imagine. Basically, Sudan, which was the north of the original country, is Arabic, um, mainly Islamic. And um, uh, when you get into what's now South Sudan, it's effectively African and Christian. And um, the in 2011, there was a referendum about whether to separate, and uh, nearly 100% of the South Sudanese wanted their own country. So Omar Bashir let them go. Um, they created their own country, and um, Sudan became a country in its own right. Um, the church, of course, straddled both. That became quite difficult um, for a host of reasons. And an internal province was created, um, but uh, with South Sudan and Sudan sort of separate but part of the same province. And this latest step was simply to uh, make a reality of the distinction between the two and to ensure that the Archbishop of Sudan is now a primate and therefore able to bring um, his voice to the primate's table. What did, you, what did you make of the Archbishop of Sudan when you met him? Well, I've known um, the Archbishop for some time when he was simply Bishop of Khartoum and I was the Bishop of Bradford. Um, he's been over here a number of times. I've been over there. Um, so I followed the over the last six, seven years um, these events with some interest. Uh, he's a wonderful man, Ezekiel Kondo. And um, in fact, he came over with my other partner, uh, Link Partnership Bishops, in March, April this year. He came to Leeds. How are Christians in Sudan holding up? Because Rotten hear stories, some of the persecution that they suffer. It's, it's one of the one of the most difficult countries in Africa to be a Christian in, isn't it? Well, that's um, actually in dispute. Um, I think what happens is that we get um, one story of something that gets then gets um, exaggerated into the whole picture. 
Now, what is evident, not only from what we heard, but from what we experienced, we were very challenging in meetings with the president, with government ministers and uh, state governors um, about things like church demolitions, um, about discrimination against Christians. Uh, we had very robust conversations with them about that. Um, but it's evident that, broadly speaking, Christians and Muslims live alongside each other, get on fine. Um, now, some of the issues have had to do with church demolitions, where the uh, response is, well, we're demolishing mosques as well. We asked, well, take us and show us some, which they didn't. Um, and they say they're doing this not because they're Christian churches, but because um, they're not properly registered or the land has been registered for other uses. Now, in fact, in one case, a very large church on the outskirts of Sudan, uh, we were told that the land which uh, a thousand people generally worship, um, the church has been there for 25 years, um, that it's actually registered for residential land and not um, uh, worship. So the church has been unable to uh, register it. And, um, you know, we did point out to them that, in fact, the church was there before the regulations on registration came in. So... Um, you know, the, we, we tackled that sort of thing and asked for a generous pragmatism in sorting it out. Um, so it, it's not as straightforward as it looks. You mentioned how Christians and Muslims live side by side fairly peacefully on the whole. But is it not the case that there is state-sponsored um, harassment? Uh, pastors are, are arrested, sometimes deported. Um, as you say, churches sometimes torn down or people prevented from going in their buildings. Um there, there is a, a kind of atmosphere of the church lives under a, under a cloud of, of possible persecution. Is that not fair from the government? No, no, it isn't fair. Um, and the, I mean, there are some people who do who would say that they're being persecuted. The, um, the majority of the churches we have encountered it, and I've, I've known this since I first went in 2013, wouldn't say that. They think there are, is some discrimination and some injustices sometimes. But we were able to bring um, many of these cases to the attention of the president and the ministers that we were meeting um, to hold them to account for uh, when they say that there isn't a problem between um, Christians and Muslims, uh, we want to say, well, okay, um, let's see how that works out. So it's a mixed picture. I mean, you know, the, you could equally be in Sudan and hear stories of the UK where Christians feel they're discriminated against um, in some cases, but you don't extrapolate from that to the whole. The president, uh, um, Omar, Omar al-Bashir, um, mm. uh, has been indicted for crimes against humanity by yeah. the International Criminal Court. And Amnesty and other reputable agencies said there's good evidence that he's used chemical weapons on his own people multiple occasions. What exactly is there to be gained as Christian leaders from sitting down with a man like that? Well, I've sat down with lots of people. I mean, what, what you do is shout from a distance and then wonder why um, persecution of Christians increases. I mean, you know, what are your options? The If you have an opportunity to sit down and put some of these things to someone who actually needs to benefit from it because they want um, American sanctions to be lifted. Um, they've been extended from July the 12th to October the 12th. Uh, we'll have to see what happens there. But um, in cases like this, you know, justice ought to um, take its course. There's no uh, negating that uh, or diluting that. But, um, 
you know, when I, I, I had meetings with the president of Kazakhstan. You know, I mean, it's not exactly uncorrupt in a lot of what you, you see there. But do we say, well, we're not going to talk to you? Or do we sit down and put the case? Well, the Archbishop's view was uh, the Archbishop of um, Canterbury and the Archbishop of Khartoum was to sit down and put the case. Is it not a danger that by meeting with them, you legitimise their regime? Well, there's always a danger um, of that. But you tell me what the options are. Do we say we're not going to talk to you? And then we complain that maybe the situation worsens. You know, you have to apply the leverage where you can. And you do that by having very frank um, conversations with people like this. Do you think church leaders like Archbishop um, Justin, um, who's obviously got a long history of, of reconciliation and, and negotiation, um, in, particularly in places like Africa, does he have a particular role to play here in, in trying to foster um trying to, I guess, bring regimes and governments like the Sudanese ones out of their shells and back into the international community? Well, surely that's what we want. And the what was very evident on this trip is that the, um, the, the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury was there and was all over their media and everything um, was enabled doors to be opened that were previously closed. I mean, um, Archbishop Ezekiel, the Archbishop of Khartoum, has been trying for years to get a meeting with the state governor of Khartoum. Um, and uh, the door opened because the Archbishop of Canterbury was coming and they have an interest in um, opening the conversation as well. So it was a very, you know, that works extremely well for the Christians there and for the Archbishop in that there's now a door open and contact made. What, what did you make of uh, the president and the other government ministers? You write in your blog that you think sanctions should be lifted. Do you think the, the government feels under threat, under siege? Are, do they, are, they, well, are they confident? Are they scared? Are they worried? I'm not sure I said in my blog that I think sanctions are going to be lifted, although I do. Um, I said the position of the UK government is that uh, sanctions should be lifted, and it's the Americans who are holding out at the moment. Um, I think the view we took was that you have to have carrot and stick. Um, and what is the carrot? You know, the people of Sudan are the people who suffer, not the um, political masters when you apply sanctions. And, um, you know, on, on the other, apart from all of um, the other stuff we've talked about, it is remarkable how they are taking on board refugees, welcoming refugees, Christians, Muslims and anything else. Um, and, um, you know, they are living alongside each other and they're taking them in without asking them, you know, who they are and what their identity is first. So there are two sides to this. We want to encourage that, um, that humanitarian approach. You have to provide the space for people to be able to change. You can't just demand that you know, they haven't done and condemn them for it. How do you create the space in which they can change their, their behaviour? Um, and I think you know, that this sort of trip contributes to that. And just lastly then, um, we sometimes hear reports in the UK about the kind of simmering um, conflicts, tribal conflicts, ethnic conflicts in places like Sudan and the border with South Sudan. Is this a religious conflict, Christian versus Muslim, or is that a quite reductive and simplistic way of characterising it? Well, I, I think the, the conflict has to do with territory. You know, we went down to Kadugli, down to the Nuba Mountains, where the government has, until um, recently, there's a ceasefire at the moment, but they've been bombing 
But it, that has to do not with um, Christian or Muslim identity. It's to do with territory and power. Um, these are the borderlands um, that both Sudan and South Sudan claim. And also, you know, along any border, um, we get you can get tensions. Um, so it's more to do with that, you know, in that sense, more to do with ethnicity and politics than religion. The religion, religious identity is part of those uh, wider issues. And do you think the the future is bright for the, the 39th province of the Anglican Communion in Sudan? Do you think Christians have a, have a good future to look forward to there? I think they do. Um, and I think this trip is more likely to make that possible because it's uh, opened conversations and relationships that weren't there uh, in that form before. And also brings home that the international community is scrutinising what is going on. Um, one of the things we said to the uh, president and to the ministers is you have to pay attention to how what you do and what you say here is perceived outside. Um, but I, I think there is a bright future. They are amazing Christian witnesses, these people. They have some very good leadership and they need our partnership, um, not in a patronising or colonial way, but uh, led by Archbishop Ezekiel and his colleagues uh, that we can help build the church there at times that you know, are getting better, but they're still not easy. And do they still cherish the connection with Canterbury, with the Church of England? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's without question. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer? One month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode and thanks for listening. (music) 